Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Lily Gordon, the founder and CEO of First Aid Beauty. Welcome, Lily. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great having you. So, Lily, you know, we have a lot to talk about. We have P&G, we have expansion, international. But before we get there, tell us a little bit about what you saw, you know, when you started this brand several years ago. Yeah, so the brand celebrated its 10th birthday last year. And, you know, this is really my inspiration for founding First Aid Beauty. You know, I was really studying the landscape because I had this crazy idea that I wanted to start my own beauty company. You know, me and thousands of other ladies and men. But I'm a student, and I spent a lot of time in drugstores, department stores, Sephora, and Ulta, and really saw a gap, okay? You'd go into, if you had a skin issue, if you had eczema, if you had sensitive skin, you were probably shopping the drugstores for Cetaphil, Aquaphor, Eucerin, all of those products. Very clinical. Very clinical, very purposeful. And then you'd go into Sephora and see, you know, a lot of anti-aging products or a lot of beautiful heritage brands, but you couldn't find solutions to your skin challenges other than really the challenge of aging. So what I saw was an opportunity to take the focus of a lot of those drugstore products, elevate them, formulate them to be one clean with respect to ingredients. So we were really one of the first clean brands out in the beauty space. And two, to elevate sort of the sensorial experience and really put the beauty into hardworking first aid products. And, you know, it sort of came after literally months of exploring, and then it all came together in a moment. Were you a beauty junkie prior to this? You know, I have a funny background. I was a math major. I have an MBA. I was in the world of finance and economics for about half of my career. And then I was lucky enough during sort of a transition period to be recruited by the founders of a lovely beauty brand, Fresh. I'm sure you're, you know the brand. That's also Boston-based. I'm from Boston and live in Boston now. And I fell in love with the beauty industry. And I'm very practical about my own beauty regimen. I love the industry, but and I love beauty, but I wouldn't say I'm a hardcore beauty junkie. So do you think that kind of outsider, insider perspective in you know, being able to say I'm practical about my beauty routine really was able to illuminate that gap in the market? I do. You know, I really wanted to make things easy, easy for the consumer to understand. You know, the beauty junkies are still a minority and the majority are people like me. They want things that are straightforward, that work, that feel good and make your skin look as good as it possibly can. So, Lily, you know, you had a pretty rapid rise in, thing, in terms of your distribution. You know, you were in all Sephora's, all Ulta's, even before P&G came along. How did you do that? Perseverance. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I'm, I know this sounds weird, but when I started First Aid Beauty and throughout my journey, I felt like the universe was really helping to support me. And, you know, for example, I had a pitch deck on the brand, and all I had 
was the direct dial number for a Sephora merchant. I literally pick up the phone. I call her. What year was this? This was in 2009. Okay. Who picks up their phone? Nobody. She picked up her phone. And on the basis of that conversation in my prior relationship with Fresh, I got an interview, uh, a chance to meet her and present the brand to her in New York. And, you know, then it went from one thing to California to launching the brand. And I had a similar experience with QVC. So it was just, you know, the whole world just seemed to want this to happen. When you think about those distribution channels back in 2009, it's very different than where we are today. You know, the conversations of digital and, you know, what people are expecting from an omni-channel beauty experience. It was a little bit different for you. Will you talk about that? Yeah, it was way different. I mean, digital wasn't a thing. People weren't used to buying skincare products, especially on digital, and it wasn't part of our core strategy at that time. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that I have as a CEO. I have a lot of talents, but I'm not digitally native, as you know, many younger founders of newer brands are today. So to build that capability into the brand and into the workings of the brand is something that now we're working really hard to do. I think the world was an easier place then. In some ways, it's more democratic now because of digital. More brands have access to the consumer and aren't reliant on the Altas and Sephoras. But in other ways, the amount of content and investment a brand has to make that a brand that is omnichannel like ourselves is It's huge. It's time-consuming. It's expensive. Talk a little bit more about that because, you know, it's also very expensive to have all those field representatives and Ultas and Sephoras and, you know, going on QVC yourself, you know, all of that time and energy when you were doing that in 2000, in those early Well, I, I guess the difference for me is that's how I built my company. So, you know, from a planning, budgeting, forecasting, um, proposition, I understood that's what would be required and, you know, just incorporated into my whole planning process, you know, but then with the rise of Facebook and Instagram and, you know, Snapchat, it's like, okay, you know, we have our designers who are very used to creating merchandising or I did a print ad campaign for several years, you know, one image, but now all of a sudden, you know, you have to produce content 24-7. And I think that's the hardest part to keep that creativity, keep it fresh, and to keep that content on brand. And it's not as much a financial expense as it is sort of an intensity, creative resource endeavor. You're customer demographic from what I remember is, you know, that sweet spot between like mid-20s to mid-30s, that younger millennial. Yes. Um, How has she changed in these 10 years? Well, I mean, I think clean, expectations have changed in the beauty industry a great deal. You know, nobody was actively seeking out 
clean. Nobody was actively seeking out um, cruelty-free products. I think, you know, they want clean. They, you know, just like this consumer wants to eat clean, they want to use clean products. So I think clean has been a big change in the past 10 years. They're so much more savvy. There's so much more information and research that can be done on products. So again, the analogy to the food industry, you know, she's picking up the product and looking at and studying the ingredient label today. And, you know, she knows a lot. She knows a lot more than she used to. And she's sitting there, you know, even if she's in store standing in front of a beauty product, you know, you can rest assured she's Googling, she's looking at reviews and gathering much more information than she used to, to inform her decision. So, Lily, let's talk about Procter & Gamble. You know, okay. it was a very interesting time when you came aboard and came into the fold. You know, they had just offloaded all those brands to Cody. I know. People thought Procter & Gamble wasn't going to be as invested in beauty. You were already, I'm setting the stage for everyone, for those who don't know, you were already in all Sephora doors, all Ulta doors. You were killing it in the landscape, the beauty landscape. So, why the partnership? You know, well, there are a couple of reasons. Um I had investors, and I'm not a spring chicken. And so, you know, ultimately selling my brand was part of my long-term vision. So there was just the pure financial play and, you know, cashing in my chips, as it were. But timing is everything, and I knew, you know, it had to be the right time for the business. And what that meant for me was, you know, I wanted to really establish the brand and take it as far as I could possibly take it. And I had reached the point where we had very healthy growth in our North American distribution channels. But tackling the rest of the world, tackling Asia, elevating, you know, the R&D and technology that goes into our products was something that I needed a partner for. So I thought the time is right. When you think about partners, you know, you probably had many offers from what I hear. Yes. <laughs> um, why Procter & Gamble? You know, they aren't a classic beauty, beauty with a capital B company. You know, they are more invested in it nowadays. But back then, you know, before all this M&A activity that we're seeing now, they weren't they weren't expected. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. Well, you know, I think from their point of view, they wanted to re-enter prestige and they're smart. They learn their lesson. They won't repeat the mistakes they made in the past, and they're the first to admit them. But I think, you know, for me, a partner meant I was going to be around for a while. They weren't going to give me a check and open the door and have me walk out. And so it was really, really important that we spent time together, and they understood my vision for the brand moving forward, and I understood their vision for the brand moving forward, and that there was an alignment by both of us. So that was really, really critical to me. The um, other thing that is really relevant and really critical is we're really all about the health of your skin, you know, and we start at ground zero in attacking that issue. And a lot of beauty brands aren't. They're more about anti-aging or feel good. And Procter & Gamble is also about healthy skin. So there was a lot of 
overlap just in terms of how we thought about beauty, how we thought about R&D, product development opportunities, and the amount of knowledge they have on skin, whether it's skin on your face, skin on your body, skin on the bottoms of your feet or your scalp is just incredible. Would you say that, you know, the international piece was very important to you? I mean, in terms of making First Aid Beauty a global brand to compete with the Cetaphils or the Eucerins or the Aquaphors that we were mentioning at the top of this conversation, you know, taking that approach in terms of global domination. You know, global domination. I'm not sure we'll get there. But yes, yes. I mean, you know, the North American beauty market is obviously very, very sizable, but Asia is huge, huge, huge. And I really felt that, you know, that's how we were really going to supercharge our growth and take this brand to the next level was through starting the process of becoming truly a a global organization. So talk a little bit about that. What was the penetration like in Asia before? What were you thinking about before you really made the push last year? Well, we're just getting, this is the very early stages of this journey. Okay. So We had distribution in Sephora Southeast Asia, in Singapore, Malaysia, and then when Sephora opened up in Australia. But it was across oceans, you know. We really weren't there on the ground. We were shipping our product in. We had a healthy business doing nothing, a double-digit growing business, a top brand, and we did nothing. But we just didn't have the resource capability to put people into those markets. The other initiative that we had started before Procter & Gamble is, you know, we're cruelty-free brands. So we started selling into China via Tmall cross-border. And that business was going very, very well for us. You know, even as we, it was scaling up very, very quickly, which was a great data point for how First Aid Beauty would be received in that part of the world. So, you know, we just really want to build on that. And so now we've launched um, in travel retail in South Korea, in Hong Kong. We've launched in two outlets of Faces Department Store. Um, We're talking about planning a unique way to go into China that does not interfere with our cruelty-free stand in the future. So, and we have a whole team. There's a whole Procter & Gamble team. and They know the market. I mean, I think that's such a great thing. We had a meeting in our office, and we brought all of the Asian team to our Newton office. And it's so different. The, the Asian consumer, the Chinese consumer, really looks at things differently than we do. Clean beauty is such a great example. They don't really know clean. They're not at clean, nor do they care about clean. They care about non-irritating. So really to have the support of people who are native to that area, who can take our brand, not change it, we don't want to change it, but really deliver the branding and the messaging in a way that resounds with the consumer in that part of the world is critical. Will you talk about the digital piece again? Because I imagine that's much more ferocious in Asia than it is here. I mean, that's what we talk about all the time here at Glossy is just the demand of content and the influencers and the, or the 
KOLs. KOLs. <laughs> you know, working with them, it's a totally different game, what they're interested in versus what the American customer is interested in. Yeah. I mean, and the, again, the Asian team works very, very closely, just like we in this country when we work with influencers. We don't want to work with any influencers. We want to work with influencers who believe and love the brand and love our products. And the same holds true with the KOLs. I mean, digital is huge. You know, we have separate Instagram account there, everything, little red book reviews. And we're really monitoring information 24-7 and collecting as much consumer information to guide our decisions. But the strategy is very, very narrow and deep at this point. You know, we have three SKUs, our Pure Skin Face Cleanser, our Facial Radiance Pads, and our Ultra Repair Cream. And no matter where we go, they're the top three products. Everybody talks about them. They're really the entry for the brand. It's what brings new consumers into our brand. So we're really focusing and going deep on supporting through digital advertising, out of home, a couple of pop-ups we've done, um, those products. Because that's where it all begins. The fab journey begins with those three products. Do you think that's very different for the demand here in the U.S.? You know, everybody is like, you know, product, 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 launch, launch, launch. The customer sometimes feels fatigued with so many new launches. Whereas I think in Asia, it's very much about the hero products. You were one thousand percent right and the pace of launching is much slower so you don't want you know here we launch probably eight to ten products a year that's crazy you know we have 38 products I've been in this business for 10 years I'm like how many products you know can a brand offer without simply overwhelming or diluting and diluting and in Asia it's much more you never lose focus of the core there's more that's wrapped around the core and the launches are more celebrated and much fewer I know you did those pop-ups at the end of last year when you were entering Asia yes um and it was very similar to what you did to the fab pop-ups here in the U.S. What was different about it? Can you explain to our listeners? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, we did our birthday tour here, which is really our first. It was a mobile tour on a trailer. And people who celebrated our birthday with us got to go in and play with the product. And we had all sorts of fun features. In Asia, in Hong Kong, when we did our pop-up, it was next level. Okay, we had a jar of ultra repair cream as part of the pop up that's probably bigger than a lot of people's apartments in Manhattan. And it was just, you know, you can get things done in Asia that you can't get here. So, you know, for example, we have Fabulance, it's part of our DNA, it's just a little you know, icon we put. Well, they had like toy size fabulances made everywhere. And they just, we had this spectacular hydration bar and curated drinks that used the ingredients that were in our products. I think the ability to bring something to life on a huge scale is, it's easier to do there. What do you think about the investment in something like that? That sounds very expensive. It's all investment. It's all a long-term, you know, create the brand awareness, pull the customer 
into the brand wherever she is. Lily, but you're a businesswoman. You know, you've got those financials. I mean, do you think that, you know, whether it's here in the U.S. or in Asia, those kind of brand awareness moments yield the conversion, yield the engagement? Because a lot of brands say, you know, whatever's happening on social doesn't do that. I think it's a very long-term play. You know, before we sold the company, we actually commissioned a study, and we found that our unaided brand awareness was very low, like extremely low. How low? Very low. (laughs) Very low. Our aided branded awareness was low double digits, okay? So to me, that just says, think of the potential of the brand. Think if we could double you know, our unaided or triple our aided brand awareness. That's just growth opportunity. And I think that, you know, one of the things I love about Procter & Gamble is they've gambled, haha, (laughs) with much bigger decisions. If I were independent, still, if the brand were still independent, I'd be really afraid, you know, I'd really be looking at much investing in much more conversion-driving tactics. But I think they have the resources and the scale, as well as the knowledge, because they build true, global, iconic brands in beauty and in other sectors to know what it takes. And they're they have, um, they're less risk averse about making those big investments. They scare the heck out of me. I would never do it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, I have to ask. When you think about the U.S., though, you know, what's the plan there? Because, I mean, even with these pop-ups in the mobile tour that you did um, last year, you you placed them, which I thought was very interesting, outside of Sephora's and key markets. Yes. So customers were able to go try what they loved, but then they were able to go convert if they wanted more. That wasn't a coincidence. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, obviously you're thinking about creating, obviously, the brand awareness, but the opportunity to increase those sales. I mean, I have to ask, beauty's everywhere now. Are you thinking about more channels? You know, no, not really. We have our own channel and our own um, fab.com is a much bigger focus for us than it has ever been. But it's always an internal debate with that I have with um, leadership at my company. Well, at that company, I guess it's not my company anymore. And that is, you know, do you scatter, you know, or, you know, if you scatter, are you just moving the pieces of the chessboard? Our goal is really to create brand awareness and drive them, you know, and we have amazing partnerships at Ulta. We have amazing partnerships at Sephora. And so I think we have a lot of runway to increase the awareness, to drive and accelerate and fuel the growth that we already have in our primary retail channels. Is it more competitive, though, in those channels? Of course it is. I mean, you see all the brands that Sephora and Ulta are bringing in. Yes. So how do you kind of fight for shelf space with all of these indie brands who really aren't that much younger than First Aid Beauty? You know, as I said, I've had a 10-year relationship and the merchants love us. You know, we were up at the Canadian um, Brand Summit in Sephora and we got Best in Class Brand Partnership Award. And I think it's really... A part of our success has really been investing in those channels and working very closely with the multifunctional teams um, and showing success. 
you know. Um, but I think to your point, we have a huge initiative planned for this year that I think can actually supercharge this objective we have of brand awareness and letting people know who First Aid Beauty is. So tell us a little bit about that, Lily. Okay, I will. I can't wait. So, you know, we I always like to tell people, 10 years, we've been on a rescue mission to rescue people's skin from those pesky, everyday skin challenges. And now we've expanded the mission of our rescue, and that's to include rescuing recent college graduates from the burden of student debt. In a couple of weeks, we're going to go live with a new program called Fab Aid, and the company is committing a million dollars to repay the um, student debt of the students we choose as winners, and we're also... Um, launching two limited edition versions of our beloved Ultra Repair Cream. And on top of our off-the-bat million-dollar commitment, 10% of the retail proceeds from the sale of those two Ultra Repair Creams is actually going to be added. So we hope to get north of $1.5 million. And we, you know, and we're doing this for a mix of reasons. You know, we know our customer is the young millennial. We know our next customer is going to be dominated by Gen Z. We know Gen Z. They really value values. (laughs) And, you know, we're at a position in the life of the company where we can really, you know, We've always had values, but go deeper in terms of the financial commitment and support we're able to give the causes we believe in. In this debt crisis, which is over $1.5 trillion, it's just incredible to think about how it's affecting all of these college graduates. It's crazy. It's sad. I mean, I graduated from college a gazillion years ago. I did have student debt. College was $4,000 a year. I had student debt. So did my friends, but it didn't take over. But because college tuition has risen at a much higher rate than wages have, the amount of student debt that kids come out with is crazy, and it's affecting all of their decisions. Some of them, you know, many recent college grads, they can't move out of their parents' house. They can't pursue their passion because it doesn't pay enough money. They can't save money to buy a home or to start a family when they would like to. And it's stressful. I mean, those are what they can do. But in addition, they're living with the stress and anxiety that being strapped with debt produces. Will you talk about, I mean, obviously, this is a huge issue in in culture and in politics today. But this seems very, very aligned with who your customer is. You know, a lot of brands out there pick a sustainability cause, pick a um, LGBTQ cause. Right. Because that's what... Is expected. Right. Why this? You know, well, we really wanted, from a business perspective, we wanted to really go deep into something that resounded with Gen Z. But a lot of this is also my own personal view. You know, I was lucky enough to have a wealth creation moment for myself personally when Procter & Gamble acquired the company and have been thinking a lot about how I want to align my philanthropic 
efforts, you know, with the wealth I now have. And it's very important. I like to go grassroots. I like to go and give my money where, you know, to an organization where I can see and touch and look at the people that are going to be influenced by our support. And so the beauty and what I love so much about this is, yeah, you know, it's 1.5 trillion. What's 1 million? It's a drop in the bucket. But in November, when we announce the winners, we're going to have 10 to 30 winners whose lives we've changed. And it's not the idea of them as a collective, it's individuals. And I love that. A lot of beauty brands out there, which I mentioned a second ago, you know, are very prescriptive in what they think Gen Z or young millennials want. What do you think they really want? As a brand, what they, what do you think they expect? What do they think they want to see on digital? I think Gen Z and millennials are very different. Of course, there's an overlap, but, you know, in age, but like a recent Gen Z and an established millennial are very different. I think, you know, the way I think about it is that I... Don't take this wrong, anybody listening. I don't understand the millennial. You know, they're, they take care of themselves, and I sort of i am envious that they take care of themselves and their interests as well as they do. I think um, they love to be in the know with trends and beauty. I think Gen Z goes back to more, say, 1970s in a deeper set of values and real causes. I mean, they they care about things. They care about authenticity. They care about caring. And I don't think we saw that as much um, with the millennial generation. Last question, Lily. How do you think that's going to affect your brand and the rest of the beauty landscape as we kind of, kind of see these next few years unfold? Gen Z or Fab 8? You know, I well, to your question earlier, I do think it's going to change the content. I mean, the real question it raises is, you know, people are searching for authenticity, you know, and I really wonder what's going to happen to the world of paid influencers. You know, to me, that's a huge question. It's fueled the popularity of so many brands that have launched in the past five years. Gen Z doesn't want to read, you know, a post by someone that's been sponsored. So I think that beauty companies are going to have to find a voice and a way to talk to that consumer that is truly authentic. I also, I heard about this um, site called Super Great, where Gen Z um, consumers are launching reviews. I think they want their information, their recommendations to be clean, and they don't want them to be biased. They so I think the, you know, the world of beauty is going to become a lot less biased. Thank you so much, Lily. It was great having you. Thank you, Priya. Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Tune in next week for another episode. And if you know someone or more than one who should be listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, please have them subscribe. See you next week.